Welcome back to the show. Joining me today, she's a comedian, a former Division I basketball player, an inspiration to people in her rise to the challenge of ovarian cancer. It's Karen Mills. How are you doing today, Karen? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for coming on to the show today. I've been enjoying learning more about you and listening to some of your shows, and I'm excited for the listeners to learn more about your rise to the challenge and how you take all obstacles and you overcome them and don't let it affect you at all. Well, I, I can't say that nothing affects me at all, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I do my best to face every challenge uh, and with a positive attitude. And um, really from the time I was just a child, I was, I want, I was love sports. I was told I was too short to play basketball. I'm five, two. And uh, from that time on, I've, always in fact uh relish being the underdog so uh so i'm not i'm not afraid of that and i uh i do try to step up to every challenge with a, a positive attitude and and uh move through it as best i can and win lose or draw there's always something learned and um and so that's kind of been my journey Definitely. I love the underdog stories. As myself, I'm always an underdog. People kind of look at me and they're like, oh, you can't perform at this high level. But I love proving them wrong and showing them that no matter what you do, it's all about that mindset. And like you said, staying positive and going full force at it. That's how we get things done every single day. That's right. It, it, it truly is. And even, like I said, when I started in basketball in the third grade, uh, back then we didn't have a middle school. So it was kindergarten through eighth grade and then nine through 12. And in the third grade, I would stay after school every day to practice with the seventh and eighth graders. But the coach wouldn't let me practice because he was afraid I would get hurt So because I was so small. So I would stay on the sidelines and just do ball handling drills every day. And then that went on for a couple of years before I could actually get into the scrimmage. But then uh, as I went on with my career and becoming a point guard and assist leader and that kind of thing, those things I did when I wasn't allowed to play yet really formed what I was to become. So you can't look at any situation and think, well, I can't do that now. If that's really what you want to do, you can start doing other pieces of that puzzle. So when it is your time, you're prepared. What brought you to go for basketball? Did you have any other sports that you were interested in or was it just mostly basketball at that time? Well, I love basketball, but no, softball, I was huge softball player also. My, um, my dad, he was a fast pitch pitcher in the army and he was always working with my older brother and he would make me get out and shag balls. And then one day he started noticing that I was making diving catches. And he said, wait a minute, <laughs> I think she can play. And so, so back then again, they didn't have like T-ball for girls. They, so I was one of only two girls with 300 boys that was in the T-ball league and the minor league. And uh, then eventually I, I moved over to the girls softball when I got, when I got old enough that they had it for girls. So, um, so yeah, I love that. I love volleyball also. Um, I, I'm more of a team sport kind of, I, you know, I, I've done a little bit of everything, tennis and golf and, but I'm, I always excelled more at team sports. 
when you were playing with the guys, what was your mindset going through that? Like, were you trying to say, I can only do what I can, or I'm going to try to beat these guys and make them like a little jealous of my skill set? <laughs> you know, at that age, I, I just wanted to play. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it wasn't fair for me not to get to play because there wasn't a girls league. And so my parents took me to tryouts and uh, I saw someone in the grocery store in my hometown about uh, six months ago. And she came up to me and she said, she said, my son was on the t-ball team that you played on. And I can remember him coming home crying that there was a girl on his team. And he said, then when you won the division and you made all stars, he was going, there's a girl on our team. (laughs) So you kind of use that as a, hey, look at us. Come watch us. That's right. That's right. Uh, But I always had good coaching, too. My dad worked with me and my brother so much from a very young age. So I always believed I could do whatever I wanted to do. And that's always so helpful when you have a belief in yourself. Did you have anyone that motivated you or inspired you at a young age? I, well, at not at that young of age as T-ball, but when I, um, uh, there was a a player for the men's high school basketball team. His name was Stevie Williams. And he went on to play in college, but he was like 5'5", which was a really short guy. And he was the most fun to watch. The crowd went crazy over his passes and ball handling. And when I was uh, in grade school, I used to go watch him and I would sit up in the stands and, and keep his stats. Mm-hmm. So he was, he, and then he later was an assistant coach uh, for the girls team in high school when I played. So he, but he was the main person that I always looked up to because he was short and he could do it. And so, um, yeah, I'd say he was the main influence for me. So as you kept going in age, was it that, when was the time where you're like, I have to focus on basketball for the most part? Or were you still in high school continuing to do all the sports? Uh, I still still played volleyball in high school. I played softball in summer. Um, Then they didn't have it in the schools yet. It was just summer league. And so, um, and then when I went to college, at that point, I could only play one sport during the during the college year during with classes and everything but i still played summer league uh, softball so i i did that till i was well out of college growing up what were your goals that you were trying to accomplish well <laughs> you know I, I i this probably isn't the best answer but um i really was just having fun growing up. I was just doing what I love to do. And I was lucky enough that God gave me some athletic ability. I had, I was genetically blessed there because my dad was a great athlete. And so I, but I truly was just having fun. And many times today when I'm doing Thing, I, I try to remind myself to get back to the fun and the joy of what you're doing because so often things just start feeling like a job and then it takes the joy out of it and then you're, you're not, I'm not as creative things just don't flow as easily so as I got to college now I had goals I want to be an all-american I wanted to play in the Olympics I wanted those things and I did not play in the Olympics I made it to the final 18 and uh, when they cut to 12 I was cut 
Um, but I got close and that was my sophomore year of college when I tried out. And what that did for me though, is going into that tryout, even though I thought that would be like the greatest thing to represent the United States, I still had a doubt in my head that I was good enough. But after I tried out, it gave me so much confidence going into my junior year that I realized that I could play with those girls. Mm -hmm. Even though I didn't make it, I was so close and I knew that they weren't up here and I was down here. I mean, you know, so it really did help me. I think that had a lot to do with me being named All-American the next two years because of the confidence. You know, when you believe you can do something, that's, that's half the battle. I think even when you said that you didn't have a goal or your goal was just to have fun, I think that's still important because sometimes kids or even teenagers, they kind of lose that passion because they're focused on, I only want to get into like this school and play basketball, baseball, and they don't get to enjoy like being around their teammates or just enjoy being on the court. And so having fun is a great goal. And I know I could have done a better job at that because I was so focused on so many things at the time that I forgot, why am I doing this? Like, why am I want to be out there enjoying myself? So I feel that, that having fun is definitely important. And you even mentioned going for the Olympics, even just being mentioned to going and trying out, that's a, still a huge honor to even be a part of that. I, some people don't even get that opportunity. When you got that opportunity, what was your reaction at that time? Oh, I was just scared, nervous. You know, I, I didn't, I, at that time, I just didn't know if I would embarrass myself. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I really didn't know. I, I, I didn't, because I went to UT Chattanooga. And even to this day, people say, do you play UT? And when I say, no, I played at UT Chattanooga, then it, it is almost like a wah, wah. You know, like they think that that's, not as good, but and even though the the legacy that Pat of uh, Pat Summit and the Lady Vols is huge, I worked all her camps. I know all those girls. We played together, but there still can only be so many point guards at a school. And I stayed close to home so my parents could come to all my games. And um, and I wanted to play from from the freshman year. I didn't want to go sit for two years. I want to be in the game, every minute of the game, if I hadn't found out, I wanted in there. Yeah. And so that wasn't going to be the situation at UT. And so I couldn't be more happier with my choice. But but going into the Olympics, I'm thinking, oh, the UT girls are going to be there and there's going to be girls from UConn and this, you know, and, and it, it, was, it was scary. And I just didn't know if I'd measure up. When you were on the team with at University of Tennessee Chattanooga, what's something that you learned about yourself over the years that you were playing? Something I learned about myself? Um, I think probably that I was better than I thought I was. You know, and, and I don't mean that to sound arrogant. I just mean that, you know, we all have self-doubt. And um, I can remember when, when my coach called me to tell me I made – First team All-American. I'm just like, you are kidding. I mean, <laughs> dang, that is something. And, and I just learned, okay, I need, to, I need to walk in this confidently. 
and um, and own not again not a cockiness but a confidence that I can play with anybody. And the other thing I learned too is you're as good as the people around you because I can I in my junior year I led the nation in assists. In my senior year, I was fourth in the nation in assists because that's because Denise Powers graduated. It doesn't matter how great a pass is if the other person doesn't make the basket, not an assist. So I, I learned early on that, you know, surround yourself with good people, let them do what they do. And I knew she was a much better scorer than I was. So I would get her the ball, feed her the ball. Then the senior year, I had to shoot more, and then my assist went down. And <laughs> <laughs> know what you know and know what you don't know. Yeah. That's the story. So would you say each year your confidence level was increasing? And when you got those messages from your coach, it just it went up even more. So by that senior year, you felt confident in what you were doing. That's right. Absolutely. So I, I believe self-confidence is definitely something that everyone can work on. Um, we're not all perfect at everything we can do, but it's all about like practicing, getting better, studying, looking at tapes and stuff. That's how we can build that confidence to be able to perform at the high level, which resulted in you being the number one in assists and all of that and being at that top ranked. When you got, when you heard the news that your number was getting retired, what kind of honor was that for you? It was, it was an incredible honor. Um, and it's still, you know, I still think about that sometimes because whether I'm in town, maybe for a comedy show or whatever I'm doing, if a lot of times they'll always include my basketball career when they're writing up that I'm going to be somewhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and when they start listing those things, you know, they kind of live back here in my mind. But then when I think, I see that headline that there'll never be another number 12, you know, that is like, wow, that's, that did happen, you know, because sometimes you get so far removed, you think, did all that really happen? You know, it seemed like another lifetime. So it was a huge honor and they dedicated, a day for me and all that. So um, I, I couldn't be more proud. When you were going to college, what were you pursuing for? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, my degree was in health and physical education because me and everyone else thought that I would coach. And um, it was kind of just my default career that everyone had kind of decided, well, that's what you're going to do. You're going to be a coach. Mm -hmm. And because basketball was what I had all I'd known for so many years. And I did my graduate assistantship and um, I did not love it the way I love playing. And I was actually drafted to play professionally, but to, but it wasn't the WNBA then, it was the WBL, and it didn't have the financial backing of the NBA. So two weeks before I was supposed to report to camp, the league folded. So I never got, yeah, so that was a bummer. So I never got to do that. And um, I used to do these things when we'd have, uh, they called it Meet the Mocks, and it was um, a dinner where we would introduce the players to the booster club. 
And every year I would write something special to introduce all the players. And one year I did a, a take on Saturday Night Live and, and it, it was really, really funny. Like we built a Mr. Bill and I don't know if you remember Mr. Bill, but <laughs> anyway, through the medicine ball, Adam's motion. I mean, it, it was so much, uh, just a bunch of Saturday Night Live takeoffs and it was hilarious. And when it was over, this gentleman in his 80s came up to me and said, what, what do you plan to do when you graduate? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to coach. And uh, he said, hmm. He said, you might want to rethink that. He said, because this is your gift. Wow. And I thought, and at that time I thought, yeah, well, no, this is fun. I've got to have health insurance because that's <laughs> what, you know, that's all I could think about. That's what my parents are saying. You got to get a job with health insurance. And so, uh, but I've thought about him so much through the years that how wise he was to recognize that. So after college, did you end up pursuing that um, opportunity in being a comedian or did it take a while before you end up getting to that spot? No, it took a while. It still had not registered that that's really a way you can make a living. I mean, that to me was just what you did for fun on the side. Mm -hmm. I had no clue. And so I, um, I actually took a job with a trucking company, Roadway Express, because they hired athletes. I mean, they, they really pursued athletes because they thought, I don't know why, you're competitive, I'm not gonna race anybody to load a truck. But anyway, they, <laughs> they, 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 uh, they wanted athletes, so I, I applied, I got the job. Miserable, I hated it so bad, nothing against them, but I hated the job. And, uh, I went in, I let them know I, I just wasn't happy. And so the regional manager said, I think it's just because we put you in a small town. You just come out of college. We're going to move you to Atlanta. I think you'll be happier there. I moved to Atlanta. Well, I wasn't happier at my job, but it got me to Atlanta, which I always think things work in mysterious ways. Mm -hmm. So, um, I got to Atlanta, I took an acting class. I uh, got to, did different things. I ended up being in a couple of plays. I met some different people, ended up leaving the trucking job and I was actually in the mortgage business for seven years. But while I was doing that, I was doing all these other things and I made a really great friend. And, um, and I kept saying, every time Johnny Carson would have a comedian on, I'd say, I really think I could do that. And so, uh, my friend goes, well, if you think you can, you need to go to open mic at the, at the punchline and give it a try. So finally I went to open mic. I got up. All I knew how to do was tell a joke joke. I didn't know how to take, write my own material. So I got up when I came off stage, the manager came up to me and said, you've got the delivery, you've got the stage presence, but you have to learn to write your own material. You can't get up and tell a joke joke. <laughs> So, so, uh, he, he recommended a writing class. I went and I took it. Then I went back to the punchline and then that night he hired me to open. And so then, uh, I started getting weeks as an opener and then eventually moved up to feature act and then headliner and then on. And so, uh, but I was, you know, I was, I was in my thirties, but, but well, I was about 30 when I started. When you were going and meeting all these people, did you kind of have some doubt, like maybe this wouldn't take off? or you wouldn't get to that next step or were you trying to go to each spot and be like, I'm just going to go for it. With the comedy? No, no, uh, with the, like you went to the acting class and then you tried those, the punchline 
and then the person gave you some options or ideas to pursue it even more. Were you kind of hesitant at that time or we were just, this is an opportunity and I'm able to work and do this at the same time? Yeah, I, I, at that point, I, I, I had a flexible, my boss was flexible with me. I could do, um, uh, he would work around my schedule when I was booked. But in terms of him telling me that, no, I, I took that, it felt right on stage. That was, that was the biggest difference. As soon as I walked on stage, I felt like I'd come home. And so even though my set was terrible, um, because it was hacky, I mean, it was just a whole bunch of jokes. <laughs> and um, still, the fact that he gave me the encouragement that I had the stage presence and I had the delivery. So that made me want to go and try to figure out what, how to write my material. So I took that class, and then my first opening job was for um, Henry Cho. Are you familiar with Henry? I'm not. Great comic. Anyway, he was so uh, precise with his joke structure and so good on stage that working with him that week and watching him made me really develop a love for the art. Mm -hmm. Because again, I had no idea. I'm thinking, hey, aren't I fun? <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't understand the art of stand-up. And so that really um, motivated me to become a, a writer. So talk about the process of you writing your um, opening act. How long does it usually take you to come up with like what you're going to say for an opening act? Well, an opener usually does 10 to 15 minutes. And um, at open mic, you would usually get six to seven minutes. So anything, six, seven minutes, I can get up six to seven minutes. Well, it, it's the slowest six that, or seven yeah, I, I would be struggling. No, with oh, yeah. me. And, but, you know, going, taking that class really helped me because that helped me form a semblance of a set, at least like a uh, eight minute set. And then you just start, you know, with an opening act, it's as important to make the announcements as it is to get laughs. Mm -hmm. So if you can go out there, introduce the next comic without screwing up their name and make the announcements. <laughs> <laughs> if you can get that right, yeah. if a little bit funny, you're okay. So, um, and in fact, I had one, uh, comedy club owners say to me, um, I don't care if you, I don't care if you're hilarious. I don't care if you don't laugh. If you don't come off stage when your time is up, you'll never work for me again. So I learned really quick how important it is to stick to your time because no one's there to see the opener. So yeah. <laughs> you have to move the show along and get the headliner on stage. So uh, anyway, did I get away from the original question? How long did it take? Well, what happens a lot of times is, or what happened for me, is I would have 10 solid minutes, I thought, and then I would write more, write more, work that out. And then you would think now you have 15 minutes and I would still end up with only 10 minutes because as soon as I wrote new, better stuff, I started cutting out everything that wasn't great, that was kind of filler. So it's a process to get 30, 45 solid minutes you have to throw away a lot of crap. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's a lot of writing and working out to get it trimmed, to get all the fat trimmed so that you have a solid set. 
did you ever have a moment where you have like your sets, but when you get on stage, you're going a lot faster than what you kind of planned. And then you're like, okay, where, where, what do I come up with next? Do you always have like a stuff in your mind that, okay, if I need to add on more time, I can. Uh, yes. Uh, I, now I do. But, you know, there were times when this was your chunk of material that you have. And if nobody thinks you're funny, that material is gone in no time. Yeah. You know, when you've got the laughs and it's, it's rolling and you can take 30 minutes of material, make it a 45 minute set. But when nobody's laughing, that 30 minutes becomes 15 minutes. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it, that can be challenging. But yes, what I do now I mean, I can walk into the room, I can look at who's in the room and know what material I'm going to do and where I'm going to go if, uh, if it does start to run short, where, where I'll segue to. So that's, that's pretty easy now, but it wasn't always. Yeah, I, I probably couldn't do that. I only have like one joke in my heart, <laughs> so like, I'd be like struggling. Oh, okay, now I'm going to start singing a song, start karaoke <laughs> night or something. <laughs> when did you kind of realize that you made it to like the main stage and you were like the feature performer for your comedy? Well, I was asked to do, um, I was getting, well, let me just tell you the difference between a closer and a headliner. Uh, Brian Dorfman, who owns Zany's Comedy Club in Nashville, said this to me because I had, you know, I had featured for people that I felt like I got more laughs than they did. And I thought, well, why am I not getting the headliner spot? And uh, I said to Brian, I said, you know, you, I, you need to give me a chance to headline. You know, I, um, I was getting as, every bit as many laughs as the other comic. And he said, Karen, you need to learn this now. There's a headliner and there's a closer. You're a closer. You got the material. You have, you get the laughs, you can go out there and you can close the show. You can do a strong 45, but a headliner, you can hang your name on the marquee and everybody runs and gets tickets. You're not a headliner yet. Interesting. Yeah. So that, you know, I, I, I'm like, wah, wah. So, <laughs> but I understand that. I completely understand it. It's a business, you know, you, you gotta be able to sell tickets and yeah. So, and what was the question? <laughs> when did you kind of realize that you're, well, it kind of was leading into like, when would you realize that you were going to be that headliner? Oh, I see. And so then uh, I got an opportunity and this was in 04. Um, an agent was putting a group together called the Southern Fried Chicks. And it, and I was asked to be a part of that group. Well, that took me out of comedy clubs and put me on, stages in these great theaters and so that really changed uh, a lot for me i mean we, and and because people buy these uh theater series uh and i mean these were huge crowds we played for 13 we, we played in winston salem uh north carolina we show up that line is wrapped around the building and we're all going who's here and <laughs> I, we didn't. I, we didn't realize it was for us, but it was like thirteen hundred seat theaters. I mean, we had a heck of a run. And then coming off of that, uh, then was able to go into different headlining situations. You know, it kind of takes you to that level, so then you can go out and headline on your own. 
and stuff, it's like it's all like marketing because like you said the headliner is there to bring in people but the closer is able to keep the people interested in what they're doing so what was the best part about being part of that touring group the southern fried chicks well i <laughs> i love the name i will say that is very it's a catchy name i will say that <laughs> well, I mean, we had a great time being out on the road together. A lot of times you're by yourselves. And uh, so, and, and I always say, you know, it, in the comedy world, it's every man's dream to have two women in one night except a comedy club owner. So it's rare that you see two women on a show. So the fact that we were three women that got to go out and do these shows together, that was, that was pretty special. It was a fun time. We had, you know, if they'd had more reality stuff, it was just getting started, but we really should have been, uh, had a camera following us at that time because there was some crazy things happened behind the scenes. It kind of goes back to what was your goals in life and how you mentioned it's all about having fun. And in that situation, your focus was enjoying the opportunity and enjoying the experience. So That's it's right. kind of like a full circle in a way. Do you have any memorable theaters or stages you performed at throughout your career? Um, I've performed, well, the Tennessee Theater, beautiful theater, many people, Kathy Griffin, um, I don't know who, I mean, a lot of people have filmed their specials there, beautiful theater. Newberry Playhouse in Newberry, South Carolina is a gorgeous theater. Um, uh, there's been so many beautiful theaters. I mean, I, I Dallas at the, um, God, I can't remember the name of it. There's a great theater there that we played. And then I've had the opportunity to open, like at Tennessee Theater, I opened for Gladys Knight. I've opened for uh, Tom Jones and B.J. Thomas. I mean, I've had some opportunities to be in big, you know, big theaters with them too. So I, I've been very blessed with the opportunities that I've had in my career. Because a lot, a lot of times comics just, you know, stay in the comedy clubs and, and I've had so many opportunities. I'm very grateful. When you got the opportunity to start your own serious radio show, how did that opportunity happen? Uh, well, I don't actually have my own show on Sirius. I've just played on Sirius on the comedy channels. So I just, um, Sirius did a special with me, um, did a whole series of specials and you went to Nashville to their studio and you had a small audience and they recorded the special and then it was chopped up into tracks and played on uh, the comedy channels. And so uh, I got the opportunity to do one of those specials. And then after that, my, uh, as I would record new material and new, new uh, CDs, I would send the tracks to them. And so I've just gotten a lot of airplay. And so uh, that's been, that's been a blessing too. So how do you market yourself to find new opportunities to perform at? Do you Not well them? enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, my management team out of Nashville, they, um, they do a lot with helping me with marketing. I mean, everything's so social media now that it's, you know, it seems like as soon as you learn one platform, there's a new one to learn. I mean, it's a challenge. I have to tell you, it is. I mean, as soon as I finish here, I feel like I need to do flip uh, backflips down the hall for <laughs> TikTok. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just always something. But um, 
but I just do the best I can. And uh, I've, I get a lot of recommendations and a lot of, um, and, and since going through cancer, I do so much speaking that um, that has also brought so many opportunities uh, to me that I wouldn't have had. I did a, 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 a women's conference in California um, two years ago and there were, it was like 3,000 women. It was um, Maria Shriver was the um, the, key, the main keynote, and then I was the closing keynote, and then uh, and then someone else in the morning. But you know, th those are opp huge opportunities to to be a part of something like that. And um, so anyway, um, uh, after going through cancer, that opened up a whole new world. Uh, I just started talking about my cancer journey on stage because everything I go through, whether it is um, good, bad, or indifferent, I, I, I humor is my coping skill. So I, I find the humor in it. And, um, and that started opening up all kinds of other opportunities after that. So talk about the moments when you were going through the diagnosis of ovarian cancer. How did you find out and what was going through your mind during that time? Well, uh, the, the, the difficult thing with ovarian is um, symptoms mask themselves as other issues. And so that's why it's so hard to detect and it's usually not detected until it's advanced stage. Um, I had had um, some shooting pains in my abdomen one night, lasted for about 30 minutes. And I almost went to the emergency room, but instead I did what most people would do. I went to WebMD and, <laughs> <laughs> and diagnosed myself with IBS. Yeah. So, uh, and that was the only thing that ever happened that seemed out of the ordinary. But I mean, who hasn't had cramps at some point? So I really did not think another thought about it. Uh, and I'd have, I had a... Um, my checkup coming up about six weeks later and I just didn't see any reason to run in any sooner because I'm thinking, you know, everybody's gotten cramps before. So I, nothing else happened. And then I went for my uh, checkup and the nurse practitioner was examining me and she got to my abdomen and all the blood drained out of her face. And she said, you have a huge mass. She said, didn't you feel that? And you know, and I felt kind of stupid that I didn't realize that, but you know, I was going, I was at an age where I was going through menopause and part of that is bloating and all those, you know, fun things. And I, I just thought it all related to that. I just had no idea. So I was sent to the oncologist and, um, and I had to get a CT scan and, and, and he told me he was 98% sure that it was cancer. Um, they weren't going to biopsy it because it was so large that regardless, it had to be removed. And so, but he did tell me at, at that moment, he said, I don't care who it is, get negative people out of your life so that you can heal. So was that like the main focus then now is to overcome it? You got to start doing steps to getting better. Uh, yeah, that was my first one. He said, I'm 98% sure it's cancer. I said, so what do we do? Because my only focus was whatever it is we got to do, let's do it now and let's get on the other side of it because I wanted it in my rear view mirror. I did want, not want to um, be someone that was uh, focused on cancer. I wanted to focus on 
my life and getting back to it and get this behind me. You mentioned that you use humor to cope. Mm -hmm. How do you use, like when you're doing those speeches, what kind of ways do you make an impact by talking about it and helping inspire other people? Well, in telling my story, for example, um, you know, my nurse, uh, the nurse anesthetist who put me to sleep was my uh, former college roommate. And before we went back to surgery, I said, Bev, is it hard putting people to sleep? And she said, I don't know. She said, it's easy. She said, waking you up. That's the hard part. And that's exactly why I wanted her there because she was willing to make a joke before we went back. And, but it was great her being there because she later gave me a play-by-play -play of how it all went down. She said that my uh, doctor had uh, diagrammed me from breastbone to pelvic, pelvic bone and across. But when he made that first vertical cut, my right ovary came flying out the size of a cantaloupe and my left ovary size of a grapefruit. Wow. Turns out my muffin top is a fruit salad. Wow. So, you know, I use those types of, of, in telling the story, I find the humor throughout. And, and realizing people come up to me afterwards and go, thank you so much. This is the first time I've seen my mom laugh since she was diagnosed or thank you so much for giving me hope. And, and so it really changed me in a way that as a comedian, really comedy is about ego. If I can make you laugh, then that said, I'm a good comic. But with cancer, it stopped being about what I was getting and started being about what I was giving because I was giving these people hope. And so it really did change my life, change my attitude, made me more grateful. And, and every day, I, you know, I, I thank God for the opportunity to continue touching people. I think that's one thing about this show that I love doing is that everyone has a story and how they rise to the challenge and get to where they want to be. And your story is definitely inspiring because you took a serious situation, but you're using that to be motivational to other people. And definitely with your comedy and your speaking, bringing those people's um, mindset positive, like giving them, if it, you're up there on stage for 30 minutes, it's the best 30 minutes that they've had maybe in a long time. And they're able to enjoy the opportunity. Like you said, that the, the daughter was so happy to see her mom laugh for that short amount of time. And it's just, and getting, taking it where you're not thinking about the ego part, but you're thinking about what can I offer to these people for that short amount of time? That's a great thing to hear. And it just, it's chills to my body. That's hot, like right now, how you're smiling and you're being able to, bring positivity to this world. Oh, well, thank you so much for that. And, you know, and, and like I said, everything comes from me from life experience. And I really did, you know, I, I say in my set um, that cancer has taught me so much, like never order a wig on the internet. Well, <laughs> I, <laughs> I ordered the Jamie Lee Curtis pixie and what they sent me made me look like Joe Pesci from my cousin Benny. So that is true. That is what happened. So all I did was rather than getting a wig that was, was not what I ordered and being 
you know, just irritated and down about the, you know, I found the humor. I mean, that is to me, my gift that I can give to someone else to help them see things that way. I think with everyone that goes through a diagnosis as myself, I'm a diabetic. And during the times I've had those moments where I'm like, I want to give up, but I have to think about, I don't need this. I want to go out there and continue to inspire people, be able to tell my story and how I've been able to overcome these obstacles and have fun. Going back to the, the fun topic, it's That's all right. about enjoying the time that we have right now and doing every opportunity we take. So what does the future look like for you? Has the pandemic played an effect on your comedy or anything in your life? Oh, the pandemic has played a huge, uh, had a huge impact on me because concerts, anything like that, conferences, that's going to be the last thing that goes back live. Um, I have some virtual events uh, coming up in the fall. I'm always very busy in September and October because September is ovarian cancer awareness and October is breast. So I always have uh, a lot of, um, of bookings during that time. And some are being rescheduled for 2021. Some are going to be virtual, but it's going to be a while before we go back to doing live events what, um, the way we're used to. So, yeah. And that's, that's hard. It, it, it is hard uh, it, because it's a different experience, virtual versus in person. Are you a person that you prefer being around human interaction than doing the virtual side of everything? I do just because, you know, I think, we feed off each other's energy and it's a little bit harder virtually. I mean, I, I think I'm getting better at it, but it's, but it's, I'm a live performance artist and I, I just, you know, I, I, I'm physical and I like to move around and that's just a little bit harder when you're confined to the computer screen. And I think definitely there's not much distractions in a way. So like when someone comes to your show, their focus is on you. But when they're on a screen, it's like, I can look that way. I can look at another screen. So it's like the attention span's not there. Right. For someone going through cancer, um, so, what tips or advice would you give them to rise to the challenge in going through it? Well, uh, I, again, what my doctor said to me is, you know, get negativity out of your life. I don't care who it is. I, you know, if someone sucks your energy, get away from them because you need all your energy yourself. You need your positive energy. There were people that would uh, want to stop by and see me when I was going through um, chemo and some people I said, sure. And some people I said, I just, I'm just not up for it today. Uh, but thank you for checking on me because if it's a drain, I can't do it. You have to protect yourself mm. because you can't give anything to others. And if you can't heal yourself, it's definitely making sure you do what's best for you. And yes. people have to understand it's not a selfish reasoning. It's, no. just, it's for the best for me going through it. It, it is. And, um, and of course I'm a big, um, believer in pets because I mean my pets helped me through chemo so <laughs> I mean they brought me so much comfort and I just think that to have something that that will stay with you and love you unconditionally and just be there is you know I always say um 
you know, I rescued my dog, but he, he rescued me right back. So uh, I think that's important, but it's so important to have interaction with, with people and positive and watch, you know, I love friends and I've watched friends rerun so many times <laughs> <laughs> and, and they always makes me laugh. And sometimes it's putting on a funny movie or if it's calling a friend that makes you laugh or whatever it is, you, you've got to stay positive. You've got to stay up because there's going to be times when you can't. So anytime you can control that, you've got to, I mean, I, I always try to, to emphasize that, you know, it, it wasn't a big joke. I mean, sure. I had my down, my downtime. I had times when I cried when I first lost my hair and I was going to a get together with some friends and they had scheduled it. So it would be on that third week after my chemo, because that's when I actually felt human again. But, um, you know, I just lost my hair and I couldn't get anything to look right. And, and I sat down and I cried and I didn't want to go. And a, a friend reminded me that your spirit shines through your smile, not your hair. And just that little shift in perspective changed everything for me because instead of seeing myself as a cancer patient, I started seeing myself as a victor over cancer. Yep. Always thinking about reaching it, reaching over it and being able to accomplish it and battling. For someone that's becoming, that wants to become a comedian or is getting into that field, what tips or advice would you give them to reach for their goals to get to where they want to be in that industry? Well, I mean, the thing was, the thing I love about comedy, you know, I, I mentioned I took acting classes and uh, what I didn't like about that is you go to an audition and and everything's in the control of the casting director. And it just may be that you're not, you're too short or you're too tall or you're too this or you're too that and have nothing to do with, with your skill level. And where with comedy, if you can make them laugh, you can come back. I mean, you can, you can have a career if you can get on stage and you're funny. So, and all the other things do not matter. And so if you really, really love it, you've got to just start, you got to write. I'd take a writing class. I would read books on it. I would uh, start going to open mic and building your set. And that's, that's what you have to do. The final question that I ask all my guests, when you're, when you're thinking about the goals that you have, the stuff that you want to accomplish, the journey that you went on, what tips or advice would you give them to rise to the challenge based off of your experience in life? Well, I think, I think in order to, to rise to any challenge, you have to believe in your ability to rise above anything. And I think what we have inside of us is if the desire is there, if the belief is there, if you are in line with your spiritual side and your physical side and you, you have, and you are in alignment. I think you can rise above anything. And, but it all starts again with having fun with what, what you want to do, because the second I start having fun, then I don't do, I'm not creative. I don't do good work. I, uh, I'm unhappy. So I think you have to put fun first. And I think you have to believe in whatever dream you have. And I think you can rise to any challenge if you're willing to work for it and do what it takes to get there. 
it's all about what's the mindset that that person has and what their goals are and then how are they going to accomplish them so it's on one of those that they have to believe in themselves because once they have those negative doubts it may not go into that direction that they're going towards oh yeah absolutely you have to believe in yourself there's there's just you know no one else will believe in you if you don't believe in yourself well, Karen, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us your journey and how you rise to the challenge. And I'm excited for the listeners to hear about your story and be very inspired by your journey. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major podcast platforms. And also head over to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episodes in video format and make sure you subscribe to that channel. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.